starting this morning with just a little bit of sad news, um, actually really sad news. Uh, Steve Ampoulin, our executive pastor uh, at this church, he's, he's been at this church uh, for almost 11 years. Um, he's been my right-hand man, uh, my partner in crime, uh, been along right next to my side uh, in so much of, of Crossroads. Uh, he is moving on. And uh, again, there's no, no, there's no drama really uh, to see here. Um, I've been at four churches, uh, pastors move on. And, uh, but Steve has been such a, a, a gift uh, to this community. Uh, he's part of the bedrock of this church. Uh, he's been such a gift to our staff. Um, huge gift to my life. And so... Uh, in the future, we're going to celebrate him a little bit more, um, but uh, today I just want you to know that so that when you see him, uh, I don't know if he's here this morning, uh, but he will continue to come to Crossroads. Uh, make sure that you, uh, uh, however you show affection, whether it's a high five or a hug or whatever, um, truly thank that guy because uh, he deserves every bit of it. Okay, continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the second one. Each give an account of Jesus' ministry. This particular one is written by Mark, or sometimes called John Mark, one of Jesus' disciples. But really the mind uh, behind this, this Gospel is, is the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter is, is, is probably the true author of this book. Mark is just the one who is writing it down. Now, there are two uh, questions I think that the author is begging us to ask, especially by the time we get to this point in the gospel, uh, questions we should be asking about Jesus. Uh, the first question is, who is Jesus? I hope we're asking that. Who is Jesus? And we're going to look at that again, uh, look at Jesus more today. You should be asking, who is he? Uh, but maybe just as important is not just who he is, but in light of who he is, how should we respond to him? Respond to him in a way that, that his power and his grace, his kingdom would break in and break out of our lives. Now, one of the primary lenses that, that Mark uh, wants us to look at Jesus is through the categories of clean and unclean. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees, as we've learned, had these strong convictions about what was clean and what was unclean. Uh, they determined that certain places, certain things, certain people were unclean, even certain foods. And, and the way they looked at this, they saw defilement as something that was outside in. Defilement happened when you went to the wrong place when you hung out with the wrong people, when you touched the wrong things, when you ate the wrong things. I don't know if uh, when you were in elementary school, if you ever played the game of cooties. Remember that game? You know, someone had cooties and what you just, they'd come and you just run from them. You couldn't touch them. I mean, that's pretty much what this is. It's a game of, uh, of cooties. Um, this is how they understood sin. In fact, my most recent trip to Israel, our group was in the Kidron Valley, and, and, and we were in, 
taking up much of the path. And all of a sudden, one of these Orthodox Jews um, came walking up to us. And uh, because we were taking up the path, he, he, most people just walk through. But no, this is still, uh, they're still playing the game of cooties. He literally, he, he went like this around us, not even looking at us. And I loved it. <laughs> because I'm like, here's first century Jesus world right here. You're watching it. Um, anyway. So then we get to Mark 7, and, and, and then Jesus finally teaches on clean and unclean, and he says what makes a person unclean, it's not out there. It's not outside in. He says the source of our defilement, it's the heart. He said greed, envy, jealousy, jealousy uh, pride, self-importance, hate, wickedness, evil. It all comes out of the human heart. As Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's our problem. That's my problem. That's your problem. That's our problem. That's collective humanity's problem. So immediately following this teaching, what, what John wants to, or what Mark wants us to see, and only Mark includes this in his Gospels, is Jesus teaches on clean and unclean and then goes into the land of the unclean. So this is where he goes. And if you see at the bottom of the map, I don't know how clear it is. My eyes are so old these days I can't see, as you know, as I'm squinting all the time. Uh, but that is the Sea of Galilee, northern part of, of Israel. And Jesus is going to go up into Phoenicia, uh, where there's Tyre and Sidon, those two important cities. Uh, this is the land of Jezebel in the first century Jews' mind. Uh, it's, it's a land at that time that's immersed in pagan idolatry and debauchery of every kind. In fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day considered this region to be the most unclean. Uh, it, was, it was so defiled in their minds that that Jews uh, would call these pagans dogs. And then Jesus, after uh, being there, he makes his way around uh, to the Decapolis. Deca means ten. Polis means city. Uh, this is the region where Alexander the Great, when he came from the west, conquering this part of the world, he's not just conquering it, but he's trying to make that world Greek. And the way he's doing it is he's planting these mini Athens uh, wherever he conquers. And in this region, he plants ten mini Athens, which is why it's called uh, the region of the Decapolis. But to the Jews, Decapolis, they just call it the other side. Not just because it's the other side of the lake, but because it's the other side of the tracks. It's the land of the pagan, the heathen, the unclean. And that's our context for today. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. So Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. He went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of these ten Greek cities, Decapolis. 
There's some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus, please touch him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And people were amazed. They were overwhelmed with amazement. And they said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you remember the first time in Mark's gospel when Jesus uh, made a trip to the Decapolis, Mark chapter 5, actually it's at the end of Mark chapter 4. In fact, he he was in this region for just a few hours. And I know that the disciples had no category for this trip. They, they, they were probably utterly horrified when they realized that they were going uh, to the Decapolis. Uh, the reason I know this is because only Jesus got out of the boat. I mean, these disciples are not ready. They, they, they live their sheltered life, uh, life in that Jewish bubble. And uh, Jesus is, is breaking them out. But in that short amount of time in the the Decapolis, Jesus put fear into this pagan land. So much fear that the locals literally begged Jesus, you need to leave now. If you remember the story, remember that huge herd herd of pigs, thousands of them went rushing into the sea. I mean, these are more than pigs. This is their livelihood. Jesus, get out, please. We don't want you. But now Jesus enters the same region. In fact, you can tell there's clues in the text to know he comes to the very place where the locals begged Jesus to leave. And look at how Matthew's gospel puts this in Matthew 15, verse 30. Matthew says, great crowds came to Jesus, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at Jesus' feet, and Jesus healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they praised. Think about it. These pagans praised the God of Israel. So while Matthew highlights the huge crowds, what Mark does is he zooms in and once into one specific man in this crowd. And look at verse 32 of our text. There's some people brought to Jesus, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. The man is described as deaf, but not just deaf. It's not just that he can't hear, but because he can't hear, he also can't speak. Most of my life, I've I've been very ignorant, to the challenges of being deaf. But years ago, a man in our community, Claire DeGraff, uh, took me to witness his ministry to deaf uh, people in Prague, Czechoslovakia. 
And I learned a lot about the deaf uh, that week. I, I learned about how incredibly lonely the deaf are. They live so much of their life on the outside, even with their own families. Because of this, uh, many become resentful, bitter, angry. Then when you also add this other piece to it, in in, in Jesus' day, uh, people with infirmities like this were considered to be cursed of God. I don't know if you remember that story uh, when the disciples see that blind man and they ask Jesus, so who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And that's just how they, how they looked at, uh, at uh, these kinds of conditions. Uh, and especially with this condition of deafness, because Jews, they see the ear to be the primary organ of spiritual connection to God. When you think about what they pray every morning and every night, it begins with the word, uh, hear, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can't do that if you can't hear. And so this man, obviously, if God has, if he has this condition, uh, he, must have, he must have deserved it and is cursed. That's why I think what Jesus does in this text, it's, it's, uh, it's stunningly beautiful. I mean, the first thing Jesus does is he takes this deaf man away from the large crowd. You see, Jesus, of course, knows what, what most people don't know. He knows that deaf people hate crowds. Crowds are incredibly frustrating for the deaf. Why? Because when they're in a crowd, they can't follow anything. They feel perpetually lost and defeated and intensely alone. So Jesus takes this man away where he can be one-on-one with this man. And then I've read some scholars are, are saying Jesus is doing all this hocus-pocus, but That's not what he's doing here. When he uh, grabs the man's ears and then he takes spit from his tongue and puts it on the man's tongue. And then he, he, he looks up to heaven. Do you see what he's doing? He's doing sign language. He's explaining to this man in the, in the only way that this man can understand that I'm about to heal you. And then Jesus declares to this man as he's looking at him face to face and the man can read his lips. His lips say, be opened. And the deaf man is healed. In fact, literally it reads, the chains of his tongue were broken. He is, he's free. I mean, how can you not read a story like this and... Now just have your heart explode with just, that's my Jesus. His kindness, his, his tender compassion, how he's sensitive to every aspect of this man's condition. I mean, as it's said about Jesus, a bruised reed, he will not break. But I think Mark, though, puts this story here, and then the story preceding it, you, you, he, he wants us to see 
the story of the Gentile woman in Phoenicia and, 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 and this story kind of side by side because if you remember last week in, in that previous story, uh, Jesus is silent. He's non-responsive. And, and then when he finally does speak with that Gentile woman, he almost refers to her as a dog. And this makes us ask, if we're reading carefully, like, is this the same Jesus? I mean, what are we to make of this? Well, for starters, I can say this. Jesus is no more for this deaf man than he was for that Gentile woman. Because sometimes Jesus is strong, and sometimes he's tough, and other times he's gentle and tender. And I'm so confident that that Jesus' heart is exploding with love and compassion for both. Because every parent knows this. Every coach, leader, teacher knows this. Sometimes love needs to be tough. Sometimes it needs to be strong. Sometimes love comes in the form of rebuke. Sometimes love needs to be gentle. Sometimes it needs to be tender. Sometimes it needs to be compassionate. I mean, the people that have had the biggest impact on my life, beginning with my parents, but teachers, and I look back, coaches, uh, friends, it's, it, it's always the ones who could say the tough word to me. Remember my eighth grade basketball coach? <laughs> Burr, you missed that year, man. You should have stayed with us. <laughs> My best friend growing up, Burr's in the house. Uh, <laughs> do you remember Dave Skur? Do you remember Dave Skur or not? Well, hey, I just got back from this uh, summer basketball camp, um, and I, I, I won awards and all that. I was feeling pretty cocky and confident, and I go to my first basketball practice. I'm in eighth graders, and it's eighth grade and ninth grade, and I'm out there doing my thing, you know? I mean, it's ball, you know. know. (laughs) He literally, he was also the uh, vice principal. He took me into his principal's office, (laughs) a room I was too familiar with. (laughs) And uh, first words out of his mouth, Rod, you're a hot dog. (laughs) And then his next sentence, hot dogs don't play for me. And he laid out then in a very strong way. These are the kind of people that play on my basketball team. And two years after that, when I graduated, um, I can say he's one of my favorite coaches. He spoke the tough things because he loved me. Some of you today, you're crying out to God. You need him. But it feels like you're getting the silent treatment. Or it feels like he's just being harsh with you. And others of you, at every turn, are experiencing his gentle touch and his compassion. I think about the story of Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus dies and and, and this devastation that these two sisters are going through and Jesus shows up and and with Martha, Jesus is strong. He challenges her. He almost rebukes her. But with Mary, 
He says nothing. He just sits with her and weeps. This is Jesus. Sometimes he gives. Sometimes he takes away. Sometimes he fills our tables with new wine. Sometimes he throws the tables of our life all over the place. Sometimes he stoops low to meet us at our level. Sometimes he says, get up, embrace yourself like a man. Sometimes he comes to us in thunder. Sometimes it's a still, small voice. Sometimes he restores us, rehabilitates us. Sometimes it feels like he's wrecking us. But in the end, I love this verse in verse 37, where it says he does all things, all things well. Because Jesus will always give us exactly what we need, when we need it, and it will always be for our greatest good. Do you know that? Can you be confident in that? Even though the Bible says a bruised reed, he will not break. Sometimes it feels like, Jesus, you're bruising me right now. And I know this as a parent. I know this as a counselor. I know this as a coach. I know this as a pastor. You only bruise the strong. And that Gentile woman last week that we looked at, uh, wow, she is a strong, strong woman. And Jesus knows that she can handle it. And he also knows that it's only going to make this woman that much more stronger. And this is why sometimes Jesus uh, comes into our life and wrecks us because he knows that's what we need. The kingdom of heaven is not something that is birthed out of a person or a church because of a church's giftedness. It's always birthed out of brokenness. And this church can attest to that. So when Jesus finally gets this man alone, Mark includes a small detail that I think almost goes unnoticed. Look at verse 34. It says, Jesus looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. That's an interesting detail. Jesus sighs deeply. You know, sometimes Livy and I will be sitting together and all of a sudden she'll say to me, what's wrong? I'm like, what do you mean, what's wrong? It's like, you just sighed. Okay. <laughs> but you know what? You do it too. And sometimes we're sighing when we don't even realize that we're sighing. And here Jesus is sighing deeply. Maybe it's the, the, the man's defeated spirit, or maybe it's the despair that he sees in this man's eyes, but it causes Jesus to sigh deeply. And I'm telling you, this one little detail tells me so much about Jesus, about why God became a human being, because here we see God's heart towards the human condition. We have a God who sighs. And 
And I have this sometimes as, as a friend. I have it as a parent. I have it as a, as a pastor. Sometimes someone will be telling me their situation, their predicament, and I have to catch myself from sighing out loud. But whenever this happens to me, I know that I'm starting to feel a small dose of that person's pain, and that pain is starting to get to me. And that's exactly, I think, what's going on with Jesus. His sigh tells us that he's beginning to feel this man's pain. And that word there, sigh, if you remember Easter Sunday, we talked about how the whole world right now is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And then Paul also says in Romans 8 that we too groan. Even those of us who are in Christ, we still groan. We groan for the redemption of our bodies. That word that Paul uses for groan, the word that, that Mark uses here for sigh, is the same word. Jesus is groaning. He's, he's sighing. Because creation is groaning. We're groaning. And Jesus incarnated himself in our world. And he sighs with us. Only Christianity. Only Christianity believes in a God who sighs. And sometimes people will, will, will say to me, like, Rod, how is it that you can believe in a God who allows all of this suffering? And my answer is simple. I, I, I can believe in a God who allows suffering because of Jesus. I mean, Jesus... There's not a suffering, there's not a hurt, there's not a wound. There's not a loneliness, there's not an ache in our heart that Jesus doesn't know because he experienced it. And right now, Romans 8, 26 also says uh, that the spirit right now is, is, is sighing with us. He's, he's sighing right now in, in, in whatever is causing you to size, he's doing it with, 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 with groans, with words that, that we couldn't even understand. I mean, we believe in a God whose heart is so bound to our hearts, a God who can't be satisfied. He can't be happy until we're happy. He can't rest until we rest. A God who will not stop sighing until we stop sighing. If God in Christ sighs for us, would we become like him? Would we, like Christ, incarnate ourselves in our world, in the size of our world, and be a community that sighs with the sign, that weeps with those who weep? In fact, our story seems to indicate that this deaf man is healed because he has friends. And, and, and these aren't just friends, uh, who, who are friends to this man, but when Jesus show up, they literally come to Jesus and they beg Jesus, Jesus, would you please heal our friend? And, and, and for some reason, God loves this quality where we beg him. 
And imagine if this could be the church's reputation today, that the world would know us simply as a people who sigh the way Jesus sighs. That we groan with those who groan. That we weep with those who weep. Crossroads, keep sighing. Keep groaning. Keep weeping. Keep begging. Keep contending for the lost and the broken people of our world. Now there's a reason why Mark zooms in on this miracle because as we read Mark's gospel, uh, I, I think it's starting to hit us uh, how many people actually don't get Jesus. They're deaf. They're, they're, they're dumb to the kingdom of heaven. They, they, they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They're, they're spiritually deaf and blind. And, and just as shocking is, is only a few get Jesus. Only a few have eyes to see. Only a few have ears to hear. And probably even more shocking is who can't see and hear and who can see and hear. The religious people of Jesus' day, even the disciples at this point, they can't see. They can't hear. But it's the demoniac it's the woman who takes hold of Jesus' garment, the corner, literally the tassels, just desperately trying to get to him. It's, it's the Gentile woman last week. I mean, she's the first person in Mark's gospel who understands a parable of Jesus. And she lives right into that parable. She says, yes, Jesus, I am a dog, but there is still enough grace at your table. A simple crumb will do. Give me a crumb, Jesus, not because I'm so good, because you're so good. She gets it. She sees, she hears. She's a female Jacob. She persists, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Can you see? Can you hear? I mean, in Mark's gospel, people are flocking around Jesus all the time. They're listening to things he says. They're just like on Sunday mornings. A lot of us, we love to flock around. We, we love to come. We love to see the show. But, but do we really have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Mark uses a word to describe this man in verse 32, and the description is, is a clause in our Bibles that talk about how he's both mute and deaf, but in the original language, uh, it's just one word. And that particular word is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's used in one of the most important passages in the Old Testament about Messiah. Isaiah 35. Now I want to start with verse 4. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. <laughs> Be strong and do not fear, your God will come. And he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. 
And then the lame will leap like deer and the mute tongue, there it is, will shout for joy. See, Mark is not using that word by accident because what Mark wants is he wants Isaiah 35 to interpret this miracle because Isaiah 35 says that when you see the deaf hearing and the blind seeing, when you see the mute speaking and the lame walking, you can know that God has come to save you. And what Mark is telling us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, that God has come in Christ to save us. But where this gets a bit confusing, at least for me, it says that God will come with vengeance and divine retribution. And as I read all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't see a Jesus who comes with vengeance or divine retribution. I don't see a Jesus who is unleashing punishment and violence on his enemies. I don't see a Jesus who is repaying people for their evil. I don't see a Jesus who is unleashing the fury and the wrath of God on the godless. I don't see it. It's because Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution. He came to the world to bear it. And I think this is the true reason for the deep, deep sigh of Jesus. He knows what it will eventually cost him to heal this man. Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb before his shears. He became dumb. Jesus became dumb. Like a lamb. So that this man could join uh, the multitude in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 ends with describing uh, this path that becomes a highway that's coming out of the barren desert. It's leading to the city of God. And the people that are walking this path are the unclean, the holy. It says only the redeemed will will walk on this highway and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And now listen to this. And sorrow and all sign will be no more. Can you imagine a world where there's no more sign? Where it's all gone? And why is it going to be all gone? Because Jesus bore it. If you want to know what are the many things that the cross of Christ means... One of them is this, Jesus on the cross is bearing the world's groans. He is taking on himself all of our sighs and all the sin and brokenness that is behind all those sighs and groans. He's absorbing it all into himself. 
Do you have eyes to see that? Do you have ears to hear that? Because as we make our way through Mark, it should shock us. Who can see that and who can't? Who can hear that and who can't? And if you want to know what it means to truly see and to truly hear, Mark makes it pretty simple. Look at the demoniac resting at Jesus' feet. Look at the woman who took hold of Jesus' tassels. Nothing was going to stop her from getting to Jesus. If I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Look at Jairus. Even though he's a big shot, he just falls desperately at Jesus' feet. Look at the woman last week. Please, Jesus, begging him. And even when Jesus says a harsh word, she persists through it. Jesus, just a crumb. See, they all have one thing in common. They are all desperate. And they bring that desperate desperation to Jesus. They bring all their unclean and they bow, bow all of themselves at Jesus' feet with nothing to offer Jesus except their need, their deep need. And according to Jesus, this is true faith. True faith is not just what we know. True faith is not just behaving correctly. According to Jesus, true faith is desperation until we are desperate and know how desperate we truly are and come to Jesus in our desperation. We'll never have eyes to see and ears to hear. As John Wesley writes, hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold, your Savior come, and leap for lame, for joy. We're going to end with communion this morning. Let's not insult the table. This is not a ritual. This is not just something we do. This is a real meal. It's a banquet that Jesus provides. And it's for people who are desperate, who are hungry, who are thirsty for the food that Jesus offers. So this morning, God, as we prepare ourselves, God, for your table... God, give us, give us eyes to see that you didn't come for the righteous, but that you came for sinners. That you call sinners to come to you. 
God, that your kingdom opposes the proud, that it's not for the self-important and the self-righteous, but it's for those who know that they're dirty and polluted and unclean. It's for the failures, the outcasts. It's for the outsiders. God, I plead that you would make us like that Gentile woman last week, God, that we would like her come humbly to you that we could admit our pitiful condition before you apart from you and that like her we may throw our lives at your feet in desperate dependence God we pray this prayer the reformer Thomas Cramner prayer that is prayed often from the book of common prayer God we do not presume to come to this thy table O merciful Lord trusting in our own righteousness but in thy manifold and great mercies we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table but thou art the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy God your mercy is is so great we're not worthy of one crumb We're all dogs under the table. And yet, Jesus, you love us. And you offer us this banquet. We get to eat. And God, when we eat, we become a son and a daughter that gets to sit at your table. This morning, God, as we eat the food, the bread, your body that was broken for us. Drink the cup, your blood that was shed for us. May we repent of all our smug self-importance, self-righteousness. And may we come to you, God, humbly, hungry, thirsty, May we eat and drink and be satisfied with the richest of foods. In Jesus' name.